Hello, this is Comeback. This is Connor, and this is episode 180. My guest today is Hugh Wilburn. Hugh is a best-selling author alongside celebrity hypnotist and self-help guru Paul McKenna of books that have sold more than 3 million copies. With over 15 years of experience in practical psychotherapy in London, Hugh has successfully led over 100 workshops in negotiation, qualitative research, and therapeutic transformation. He is the co-author of I Can Mend Your Broken Heart, published 2003, and Agree to Win, Essential Steps to Negotiate in Your Work and Life, BBC Books 2004. In 1999, Hugh co-founded Core Wilburn Research and Development, a qualitative market research business gaining reputation for solving challenging projects and developing innovative research methods. We have quite a bit to discuss today, so let's get right to it. Hugh, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, Connor. Thank you very much for that uh, intro. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, for real. A lot of people, they get surprised when I read their CVs back to them. They think, oh yeah, I have done that. And I have done that. And it's always quite a, a weird process, isn't it? When someone reads back to you your life or your CV to date. It is indeed. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind then, Hugh, just to start with, before we dive into the work you've done in your career, do you mind telling me a little bit about your background in the UK and how have you ended up here in Vietnam? Oh, a little bit. Well, I was born in the UK. I was educated there. I went to university in Scotland. Uh, I lived in London for over 20 years. Um, about 10 years ago, I became interested in Lindy Hop. So that's swing dancing to the music of the basically the 1930s, swing jazz. Um, I just saw it one evening and I thought, that looks so much fun. I've got to do that. And I went at it. I, I basically danced as much as I possibly could, very enthusiastically, and I have to say quite badly, uh, but it was incredibly good fun. And little by little by little, I began to learn to dance a little bit better. And uh, one of the things about the, the Lindy Hop scene is that they have uh, what you call um, Lindy exchanges. A bunch of dancers in one city will get together They'll book a few halls and a few live bands, and then they invite people from anywhere else in the world to come by and dance with them. And in 2014, uh, the Saigon uh, Swing Cats had uh, VLX, the Vietnam Lindy Exchange in uh, Saigon. And I was, I'd just finished a book, I think, and I was just giving myself a little holiday. And I saw, oh, look, there's a Lindy Exchange in uh, Vietnam. I'll, I'll swing by there. I hadn't ever been to Vietnam. I've been to Thailand a few times, but I wanted to have a look around Southeast Asia. So uh, I came out here, did some dancing in, here in Saigon and in Bangkok. And, uh, and I met somebody here. So uh, I went back to the UK, but then I thought, well, I'll come back and see her again. And uh, at that time I was writing. so. You can write anywhere, you know, and um, although I was still based in the UK, I spent more and more time in Saigon and uh, then I got married and uh, uh, now I have a couple of kids and I'm living in Saigon. Oh, excellent. Yeah. How do you find Vietnam as a whole? It's a completely different way of life to the UK. How have you adjusted to it? Oh, um, 
how have I adjusted? I don't know. Uh, uh, I live in a fairly Vietnamese part of Saigon, so I'm not uh, in the expat district. Um, I, in normal times, I, uh, I have a Vietnamese friend and every morning we meet. He, uh, uh, he teaches me a little bit of Vietnamese. Uh, I teach him a little bit of English. You know, one day Vietnamese, one day English. Um, as you know, Vietnamese is not the easiest of languages for European people, um, it but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, life you, everywhere is strange, really. The longer you live, the more you realize everywhere is strange. So strange and new is, is kind of better than just strange and strange. <laughs> yeah, of course. And as I explained at the start, there's quite a lot to cover with what you've done. However, let's you know try and go from the beginning. Initially, mm -hmm. you were involved in psychotherapy and you trained there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I trained as a hypnotherapist um, and I was, I was pretty good at hypnotizing people. And then I realized that I didn't really know too much about what to do once I'd hypnotized them. So I became interested in uh, various other uh, branches of therapy. So therapy, brief therapy, uh, um, uh, existential analysis, Jungian analysis. Um, I, I basically, and of course, like every other therapist, I learned most of all from my clients, I think. Um, so uh, yeah, that was a kind of a long, a long learning. I think also it's true that uh, almost everyone who becomes a therapist is someone who actually needs therapy. They just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. And um, it took me a while to realize that. And I did enough therapy to feel that kind of I could move on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I still actually see a few people uh, over Zoom, but mostly I'm, I'm doing other stuff now. Yeah. And what was it that drew you to this practice of hypnotherapy in the first place? This was back in the late 80s, if I'm not mistaken, where it possibly wasn't as popular or mainstream as it is now. Uh, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, the, the short answer is I accidentally hypnotized somebody once. And then in order to find out what I did, um, I had to train as a hypnotist because uh, that was kind of the only way to learn. And the only kind of hypnotic training you could do in those days, uh, probably still today, was to be a hypnotherapist. Um, and when you the more you study hypnosis, the more you realize that uh, hypnosis is a, indeed a phenomenon. But what it shows you is that everyday consciousness is nothing like as simple as we like to imagine. Actually, most of us spend a lot of time falling in and out of different sorts of trance, you know, believing in different sorts of overarching ideas which capture the mind and cause people to be quite, quite conflicted, really. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long discussion there if you want to go that way. Yeah, for real. And what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about hypnosis? Obviously, you know, I'd say the biggest misconception from what I see is that you have somebody with a black suit and look into my eyes and, you know, how, how, how do you think it's portrayed compared to what it actually is like? Um, I mean, stage hypnosis is a bit like that. That's, that's very powerful, but that's, uh, to a great extent, it's a function of the context. Um, I think the biggest misconception people have about hypnosis is that when people are hypnotized, they will tell you the truth and nothing but the truth. Um, people are quite capable of being deluded in everyday consciousness, 
trend in hypnosis. There's, there's nothing special about hypnosis that causes people to speak the truth. Uh, you know, people were used to say to me, oh, don't look at me, I'm frightened. You know, you'll hypnotize me and make me confess stuff. It's, it, that's not possible. People can choose to tell you things in this and just to tell you things in everyday life. Um, and you can, you can induce, you know, certain sorts of behavior, but uh, hypnosis is not, it's not a cure-all, it's not a super, it's, it's just an altered state of awareness in which you can discover that uh, a lot of what's going on uh, is not really deliberate anyway. Do you think the person who is being hypnotized has to be willing or can anybody be hypnotized without realizing, if that makes sense? Uh, ooh, that's a, again a big question. Uh, essentially, everyone can be hypnotized, but not by every hypnotist. Yeah, so hypnosis is a natural capacity. Um, let's say you're running for a bus and you really want to get that bus, Connor. You really, really want to get that bus and you bang your head on, uh, sorry, you bang your toe on uh, a stone on the pavement, but you run, 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 run. You make it onto the bus, you relax, you sit down, and go, oh, thank goodness. And then suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, my foot hurts. You banged that stone with your foot as you were running for the bus, but you gave yourself an automatic analgesia. You just didn't feel the pain because there was something far more important at that moment, which was catch that bus. You catch the bus, you relax, boom, wow, that hurts. Okay, so that's a natural phenomenon. It's also a hypnotic phenomenon. So we're all capable of doing things like that. Another good example you can see uh, in the hip, in the supermarket for example you see someone standing in the aisle and they're looking at all the different packets of cereal and they're standing there and their right hand is kind of like frozen in midair because they just don't know whether to go for the cornflakes or the, the sugar puffs or something and they're kind of indecisive and that hand is stuck in midair and it's kind of weightless and frozen now if i induce that with hypnosis that's called a catalepsy but that's again a natural uh, human capacity we just don't notice the weight or indeed the presence of the hand is just hanging there without us doing anything about it. So a hypnotist essentially makes use of a natural capacity that we have to redirect our own attention or to focus our attention or to move the attention somewhere else. Right, I see. And do you have any favorite aspects of hypnosis? And as in, did it change your life in any way once you realized you were capable of it and you were capable of recognizing its impact. What sort of changes did you see within yourself? Uh, well, that's a great question. <laughs> I think there are two useful things about hypnosis that are true for all of us. Um, one is that um, most of the time, not always, but about 90 something percent of the time, when people go into trance, they relax. Strictly speaking, that's not really a function of hypnosis. That's really a function of the fact that most of us carry far too much tension around in our everyday activities. So when given the chance to let go of it, we do that. So for most of us, hypnosis is relaxing. And the other thing that's really worth knowing is it's great for first aid. So um, for example, if uh, somebody has a burn, and you get them to imagine that, let's say that your hand is burnt, you've poured hot water on your hand. You will vividly imagine sticking your hand into 
a snowdrift into a snowdrift where the ice, the, the snow is melting into cold, cold water and dripping all around your hand, making your hand so incredibly cold, really, really painfully cold, just so cold. Yeah. Do that. Vividly imagine your hand being surrounded by freezing, freezing cold snow and you will prevent the burn getting worse. And there's actually a lot of uh, um, published papers on this kind of use of hypnosis. So, so hypnosis is really good for first aid. Um, that, that's an important thing to, to know about it. Yeah, and it, can it also be, I actually misheard you at first. I thought you said, is it good for a first date? And then you moved on to first date and I thought, <laughs> okay, different theme. But it does bring me to the question, which is, is hypnosis useful in building rapport and understanding other people? It's certainly useful in, in understanding other people. But, um, you know, I think it, it's also worth noticing that, you know, the two things that assume about hypnosis, one is that people go into trance and the other is that they are suggestible. That if I tell you something when you're in trance, somehow or other that will influence you in a special way. The reality is that we always influence each other all the time. And we are always being influenced. People are extremely suggestible. And so, that's something that actually is quite separate from an official hypnotic state. As I said, ordinary consciousness is nothing as clear and clean and bright as we like to imagine. We're always being, if you like, uh, uh, we're always facing and in the middle of a lot of different influential messages. Um, so it's really worth knowing that everything you do influences the people that you are with. And you are, if you like, in a, a complete mash of influences coming at you from all different directions, you know, from advertising, from the internet, from politics, from your friends, from your family. We're always in this big if you, uh, mashup of, of influence. And that's really worth paying attention to uh, because when you realize how much incoming stuff there is, it, it's really worth uh, beginning to develop in yourself the ability to have some kind of independent thought, some kind of discrimination of whether or not to believe all the things that are heading your way yeah okay so i think that's worth worth uh, paying attention to yeah of course and i do value that input and it brings me nicely to the next point and as i explained to you just before we started recording when i saw your bio and cv and the work you've done it struck me that you had worked with paul mckenna who as i mentioned back in 2019 when i was at a very low point i discovered his work uh, and yours as well, uh, linked, devoured it within two weeks and suddenly everything got better. And so with that, I'm fascinated. How did you begin working with Paul McKenna and what was it all like writing books with him? What sort of work were you up to? Well, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the dates, but sometime in the 80s, I was... Um, on a, the committee of a, a group of hypnotherapists and psychotherapists in London. Um, and at that time, Paul was uh, a DJ. He was a DJ at Capital Radio, but he'd gotten really interested in hypnosis. And uh, through his agent, he asked me to help him so that, that he could get a, a license from Westminster Council. There hadn't been a hypnotic show in Westminster in the middle of London for, for decades. Um, and in those, back in those days, hypnosis had a, a slightly kind of seedy, exploitative image. And Paul didn't want to go that way at all. He wanted to be a much more 
if you like, family-friendly hypnotist, but he needed people to know that his show was safe. So he got me to uh, come and see him and give some advice, you know, do these routines, but don't do those ones and so forth. So he got the license. He started working in Westminster. He did a lot of shows at, oh, crikey, I've forgotten the name of the theatre, down the bottom, down the bottom of um, St. Martin's Lane. Can't remember um, yeah. the name of it. Um, and, and off he went, you know, he, he became a, you know, a celebrity first. Well, he was already a celebrity. He was a DJ. But then he, he did the stage. And at that time, I was um, kind of away in the, in the library doing my PhD. Um, and he would kind of ring me up and say, can you write this, that and the other? And I'd go, sure. And I'd, I'd write something for him. Um, so he, we did a lot of um, audio tapes and CDs and DVDs and stuff uh, for, well, I don't know, a long time before we did the Broken Heart, before we did the books. Um, and yeah, so I've known Paul for ages, 25 years, maybe something like that. Long time anyway. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And how was the process of writing How to Mend Your Broken Heart? How would you describe the overview of it? I know the title is quite maybe self-explanatory, <laughs> Mending Your Broken Heart, but would, would you mind you know, elaborating and telling me a bit more? Um, it was a nightmare. I hate writing books. <laughs> I hate writing books all the time. Um, so it's... Um, and to be honest, somebody, somebody, I think it was Thomas Mann once said, Writer, writers are people for whom writing is more difficult than ordinary people. Um, so it, 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 was, it was blood, sweat and tears. It was incredibly hard work. So Paul is very much um, the technical guy. Here are the exercises. Let's do this. This is the way to fix it. Um, and uh, my starting place is kind of philosophical and complex and psychological. And Paul says, now nah, you can't use words like that. <laughs> so between us, we arrive at this place where we write something that's got some, got some psychological rigor, some guts to it, but is very much about usability and accessibility. Yeah. And so uh, that's where we ended up with Broken Heart. But I have to say, it took a long time. It took uh, the best part of 18 months, I think that book, maybe even two years, it was a long time. If something's easy to read, I can tell you it was really hard to write. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I've seen some interviews with Paul before where he'll be asked and perhaps somebody would criticise and say, oh, well, it's, it's easy to read. And he'd say, well, do you know how hard it is to condense extremely complex psychological and philosophical practices into things that could be read by a seven or eight-year-old? It's extremely difficult, and I'm sure you can vouch for that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So... Uh... Yeah, we both work very hard. Yeah, of course. And do you mind telling me a bit more about your second book, um, the book regarding negotiation that you released in 2004? Sure. I mean, that's interesting because I'm coming round again to that. I'm hoping to re-release that one. That uh, I was asked to write that as part of a series that BBC Books put out uh, then. Um, I'd been doing some negotiation and I, I did a, a great deal of research for that book. And I went and talked to some really extraordinarily successful and powerful people um, negotiating in all sorts of different fields, you know, from vintage cars to um, aeroplanes and leasing and um, e even um, what are super tankers, um, property development, uh, uh, you know, personal negotiations, family relationships and so forth. Um, so I did a lot of research, 
And I started writing a book and the basics of negotiation are pretty straightforward. You, there are goodness knows how many books about them and there are some standard moves that you have to go through. And I started writing this book and I kind of got bored. And that's a bad sign. If you're bored writing a book, that doesn't bode well for your readers, does it? You think, oh, if I'm finding it boring and I'm writing it, that's not a good thing. And um, I did what you do when you're bored and a writer. I tried to run away. I found myself a ticket to fly to Mexico the next day for almost nothing, jumped on the airplane. And on the plane, I had this insight. I realized that I'd been talking to all these really fascinating people, really very, very interesting people. And I was writing a boring book. And I thought, well, I'm missing the point because the reason these people are so good at negotiating is not because they are you know, playing the cards differently from other people. Everyone gets the same cards to play in a negotiation. It's because of their character, their personal qualities. And their personal qualities were remarkable. These were people who were really good at being solution focused, at being flexible, at being relaxed and telling good stories and listening really well and being curious. And all these qualities and many more turned out to be what put them apart from your average dude. And so then I was able to use my, if you like, my psychotherapy background to go, well, okay, what we need to do is to develop those qualities. When you've got those qualities, you're going to use all the same techniques as everybody else, but just a whole lot better. And so that, uh, so I basically rewrote the whole book in 10 days in Mexico, because I knew what I needed to say, and now I knew how to do it. And so that actually is very timely, Connor, because I'm teaching a course next month in September, an online course about negotiation. And it's based on that book because hopefully we're going to republish the book, bring it a little bit up to date. And in these particularly difficult times in which we live, negotiation is going to be a really, really valuable skill. Yeah, of There's course. so much conflict. There's so much disagreement going on. And we've all of us discovered that arguing with people doesn't really make a lot of difference. What we need to do is find out what we have in common and then negotiate towards some kind of agreement about what we need to do together. So yeah, that's a, a short story about the book and uh, uh, a bit of a plug because I do actually think that this uh, that negotiation is very much what we need. It's a bit of an antidote to all the, the polarization that's going on at the moment. Yeah, no, of course. And I do agree with you there that negotiation is about solving the problem i often feel like arguing doesn't really get you anywhere it's just two people convinced they're right and co often come away even more convinced they're right without finding any common ground whatsoever i feel like negotiation is the happy medium in bypassing that from what you're saying uh, yeah i agree connor i mean uh when i was young like really young university i used to like win arguments not because i was right but just because i was really good at arguing and I was really an unbearable little idiot, to be honest, um, just because I was a clever clogs. And I thought, ah, I can see a hole in that. I can see a hole in that. I didn't make myself any friends at all. And eventually I got over it. I realized that there was really no point in doing it because even when I won, people would still dislike me. It's not, it's not it's like, oh, great, you're a clever dude. No, they would know that I'd cheated somehow or other to win the argument. So mostly arguments are, are, are a waste of time. There are special places like, fewer and fewer where it's worth arguing a case for example in a court of law in a debating society or whatever but most of the time they just lead to trouble and 
a, a negotiation is a conversation leading to agreement. That's what it is. It's going towards agreement. If you haven't reached agreement, that's okay, but you can keep talking until you do. Yeah, I see. And how did you initially get involved with this negotiation practice, you know, um, at the level that you have? What was the initial stage? Was psychotherapy and hypnosis helpful for you in reaching that point of negotiation for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I've had a sort of a, a, a career across uh, uh, academia, performance, business and psychotherapy. And, and at one point I used to think, well, one day I'll find out, you know, the true career. But actually my career is across all of those things. I, I do the same thing everywhere I go, which is I solve problems and I tell stories, or I tell stories and I solve problems. Now that works in psychotherapy, that works in negotiation, it's performance is about uh, storytelling and so forth. And it's just that the world arranges careers in a kind of silo fashion. So I, I was doing some psychotherapy, but then I ended up doing some consultancy that turned into negotiation. And then uh, I, I researched a book. I ended up sort of this with this small but growing negotiation consultancy that was running alongside being a psychotherapist and then a storyteller. And then I took, then I started getting into qualitative research, but really I was doing the same thing with a different hat on. Right, I see. And across the board, then that brings me to the powerhouse, which is what you have coming up next month. Do you mind telling me a bit more about that? Not at all. So the, the powerhouse is the, is the business, basically. And we are we do lots of training. We just finished a, a little uh, intensive, a one week intensive, which was called uh, More Energy, More Success, More Often. And it's uh, it draws on this whole background that I have. It draws on psychotherapy. It draws on negotiation. It draws on philosophy and indeed uh, on the practice of uh, qualitative research. And it's all about helping people to uh, find and fine tune their own power. So the way I say think of it is people come to our house to find their own power and then they can go off with it. Now, there are many different areas, of course, in which we can use that. So uh, the, the course coming up next month is about negotiation. And that's uh, twice a week for six weeks, uh, live online sessions. Then uh, after that, we'll be doing one on storytelling, which is another hugely powerful uh, element of communication. And indeed, uh, another way that we can bypass arguing with people and build relationships with people. We'll also be doing my, my business partner, Leah Luchtenberg. She will be uh, doing a course on moving out of the corporate world and into the self-employment world. Uh, because there's a big psychological change once you've got used to working for a corporation to to set up on your own it's quite a brave thing and uh, that's a path that she's already taken she was a coach in the corporate world and a leadership trainer and so forth but she stepped outside of it and uh, you know it was a wild path uh, uh, but she wants to share her learning um, alongside the other stuff that we're doing so hopefully within the powerhouse brand we'll be doing a, a large number of different specific focused trainings um, which cover different areas of, of people's lives. Yeah, I see. And I'd like to go back to what you mentioned a few moments ago about 
the fact that across the board you've done the same thing just in different areas which is to solve problems and tell stories I understand that this might be quite broad but what is it about you think that draws you to the ideas of problem solving and storytelling what is it about them that appeal to you that's a great question um well um i enjoy telling stories um i enjoy working with an audience i mean one of the sadnesses of the current situation is that everything's kind of a little bit pushed back because we're on zoom but i really like working with a live audience i think that's great fun um, I love telling stories for, for 10 years. I was the artistic director of a group called Playback South in London, which um, is an interesting form of theater. You get an audience and a lineup of actors and then a conductor who's sort of halfway between a lightning conductor and a bus conductor. The conductor elicits moments from the audience. Like what were you, what was, what were you doing this morning or how did you feel this afternoon? Or then, and the, actors immediately play that back so it's turning your life into theater and then we go on and we'll move on to whole stories like the story of how you came to Vietnam for example you would tell it to me as the conductor I'd turn to the actors and say we'll see that in free form and bang we'd see your story immediately live and it's a wonderful experience really really interesting to see your own life we don't, we don't improvise in the sense of making up new facts. We improvise in the way of trying to present that story. Yeah, see, I love, I love the fact that- Incredibly rewarding to do. Um, I used to, used to work as a traditional storyteller. Now, the, the really interesting thing about traditional stories all over the world is that one, they're very similar. Two, they exist. Why would a story continue to be told? Because they're told from one person to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. There's something about a traditional story that appeals to an enormous number of different people. If I tell you a boring story, you're not going to repeat it. If I tell you something that in some way appeals to you, you might tell it to your friend and your friend might tell it to somebody else. And so these stories are somehow deeply human. They've passed through, through many, many ears and many mouth to ear to mouth to ear for thousands of years. And there's something deeply human about them. So when we tell them again, we connect in a way that is way beyond something you can write down in three bullet points. You say, you can't say the meaning of the story is X. And yet there's something very profoundly human about them. So when you, when you work with traditional stories, you discover you're kind of inheriting this mystery treasure box, which keeps opening up and showing you new things about yourself and your life. That was a really rewarding part of my career was working with traditional stories. And I still tell a few stories when, when the occasion merits it. Yeah, of course. I think this links nicely to almost a like a contrast really that I've noticed from looking at your career where you've been involved in the academia and the let's put it under the title of you know self-help with the hypnosis and the books but you've also yeah. gone into the creative sense which is a totally different world but you've still managed to get your message message across where whether it be academia or theatre and dance you're still managing to convey the same messages and put your work across. Well, <laughs> that's kind of you to say so, Connor. I mean, I just do my thing. Um, I think it's 
for me, it's been fascinating that I've really, I, I've really been guided by a very simple rule, which is find something you like doing and get someone to pay you to do it. Now that's, it's a simple thing to say, but it can take quite a long time to do that. In order to do, in order to even find things you like doing, you have to keep saying yes, because you don't know what it's like until you try it. So I try this, I try that, I tried, oh, this one I like. So I keep doing it and I keep doing it. But I've done, as you rightly say, things in many, many different fields. But little by little, I've discovered that if I do things that I care about, I succeed. If I do things which are merely a good idea or merely make money, I don't succeed. I have to care about them. I have to really want to get it right. And that's true for writing. It's true for storytelling. It's true for qualitative market research. It's true for, for philosophy. It's true for um, uh, all of these different fields. If I care about it, then I'm committed and something positive will come out of it. And now I discover that it's all come together. I mean, one of the main reasons I worked for a long time with Paul using writing books essentially for him is that he knew what he wanted to say and he had some great ideas. He'd say, you know, I can make you sleep. Well, it's clear what that's about. And I'd go, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's work on that together. And I would think, well, yeah, you know, why don't I write my own books? Well, I don't really have anything to say. And now all of a sudden I find that everything I've studied all of these years, all of this experience has come together and I do have some insight. And that's one of the reasons we're doing the powerhouse. And sooner or later, I'll be writing another book, although I hate writing books, but actually discovering that it all comes together and makes sense is, is quite gratifying. And uh, so now I feel like I'm, as it were, beginning yet another career, which is where it all, uh, all of this storytelling, problem solving and so forth, all uh, fits together. Yeah, no, I like what you said there about you when you're actually invested and you enjoy it, it seems to go well. I feel like a lot of people perhaps start a business or a project hoping to get the rewards, but if they don't really enjoy it, then they're missing the point as in, even if they get the end goal, for example, they still won't be fulfilled and happy because they've done it for the wrong reasons, perhaps. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm telling you my, my experience. I can't really judge others. I, I think it's, you know, life's tough. A lot of people get told to prioritize, for example, status or get told to prioritize money. So I remember years ago um, talking to a chap who uh, I think had maybe been in the same school or university or something. And he'd gone into the city. He had this fantastic flat in, in Notting Hill. And I was like, oh, my God, this place is amazing. And he said to me, oh, I really wish I had your career. I thought, I really wish I had your money. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it, we all have to muddle through. Yeah, of course. And with that, Hugh, uh, a part of the show that I always bring back to is the comeback aspect. So comeback from adversity. This question might be tricky, but what would you say have been the main challenges for you that have kept coming up throughout your career? And how have you dealt with them? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the main challenges, um, I would say the main challenges have been having an idea and thinking, oh, that's a great idea and going for it. Although I had perhaps not the commitment of the heart or the experience to make it work. 
So I had two businesses, uh, I was a partner in two businesses that failed. Uh, not because they were a bad idea, but because my heart wasn't in it. I, I, I had a partnership with a, a woman who'd started a business called Bags of Change, which was a scheme to promote independent ethical retailers uh, and environmentally sensitive and so forth with a, with a bag that if you use this bag, you would get a discount at the environmentally friendly shop or whatever. So it was a great idea. Uh, but actually, it wasn't my baby. I put some money in, I put some time in, but I didn't care enough to argue about every single point and really push my way forward and say, no, no, this really, really matters. And one of the things I learned from what, working with Paul for many years is that he really cares. You know, he really wanted to get things right. So when we did, for example, Broken Heart, he wanted to put a CD in the back with a trance that we'd done for it, a, a, a hypnotic trance, a mind programming, mind programming CD. And the publisher said, oh, you can't do that. You can't put a CD in the back of a book. He said, yes, you can. You can do it. Here's the price. This is what you need to do. And they said, oh, no, you can't do that. Really, you know, people will steal it. It'll all go wrong. And he said, no, you can do it. You're going to do it. A big ruck, took it to the top. They went his way. It was a fantastic success. Not only did we do it in that book and many other ones, but the rest of the world started imitating us. So, but, but Paul really cared. He really wanted to get it right. And that really matters. So many of the mistakes I've made is thinking, oh, that's a good idea, but rushed at it without discovering that I need to have my heart engaged as well. And I need to have the experience to know how to do it properly. Um, and in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, a victim of that problem along with many of us at the moment, because our education system is grotesquely distorted towards ideas and theories and ideologies and uh, and written concepts and the other bits of the education that have, have been overlooked are the traditional ways of learning apprenticeship experience and storytelling so one of my big projects now is to restore what i call the four pillars of education education is very much bound by the narrowness of literacy i mean even things like nursing which is a profoundly relational activity, has now become a degree, which is disastrous in many, many ways. Uh, a degree in, I don't know, football studies is absurd. Football is a fantastically skillful activity. You certainly don't need to write about it to be a good footballer. You don't need to do rather dubious research in order to be a good nurse. You need to have a lot of experience of patience. So the uh, experience, apprenticeship, and storytelling are the missing pillars of education, and literacy is overburdened. It's great, it's useful, but it's been asked to do too much work. So we need to rebalance all of those. And when we do rebalance, then we find that life goes a whole lot better. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I, I know this might be just, you know, ideas, but what do you think can happen so that we can rebalance those and get to a better setting? Well, conversations like this, Connor. I'm, I was delighted that you, you invited me on your podcast because we just have a chat and we've never met before, but we can share some ideas. Uh, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm just trying to tell you what I think and you're being curious and sharing your thoughts as well. That's a great start for helping things. We're not, you know, it, it's perhaps a whole lot easier than having some big idea about how to fix things. I, I don't think that we need any more big ideas. We really don't. We need to listen to each other. We need to try and have some simple, practical 
local solutions. Almost all of our problems are a function of top down, everything's got to fit into this policy or this protocol or this idea. Those don't work. We've got an enormous amount of evidence of that now. What we need to do is let local people do the, the, the thing to their best of their ability. So for example, in medicine, you really, really don't need the government to tell doctors what to do. The government always gets it wrong. Now, some doctors may get it wrong, but most of them will get it right. And they will begin to teach the ones who are getting it wrong because you can see by their results. If there is a, a government edict which says, throw everybody out of the hospitals, put them into old people's homes and do all of these things, you make a mess of the health service. And that's exactly what they did in the UK. They did it in many other places as well. And it's, the doctors need to be let to do their job. They're not all perfect, but that the diversity of their activity is a whole lot safer than one foolish, if well-intentioned, bureaucrat in central government thinking they know the answer. Yeah, no, I think that's powerful. No, I definitely see where you're coming from in that regard. Um, before we you know, come to the conclusion of the show, Hugh, can I ask you, are there any key messages or key values that throughout your career have served you well? And if so, what are they? I understand that's quite broad. Okay, here's something I tell my students. You've got two really good advisors in life, death and boredom, right? You're going to die. And so is everybody else you ever meet your family, your children, your parents, every single person you meet, they're all going to die. When you realize that, it really makes you pay attention so that whatever you're going to do now, you might as well do it well. It doesn't mean go off and get drunk for the rest of your days. It means if you're gonna have a conversation with somebody, enjoy it, enjoy that person, do the best you can to do whatever you're doing well. So that's number one. Number two, boredom. If ever you're bored, that means something's wrong. Remember, you're gonna die. You haven't actually got very long to live. And if you're bored, that's an appalling waste of your time. And the key to understanding boredom, there's a, about 150 pages of philosophy behind this. I'm gonna to cut to the chase. The key to understanding boredom is you are living somebody else's time. You're, you're thinking, oh, I'm stuck here. I'm not living my own life. If you're living your own life, you will not be bored. If you're stuck in somebody else's idea of what you should be doing, you can get bored and you really need to get out. You really don't have enough time in your life to waste it being bored. And if you were to get bored, you know, the moment once you realize you are bored, what would you suggest to do once you have that realization? And, and well, good point, Connie. Sometimes it takes a little while to realize you're bored because we get lost in it. Right? So I go, oh, I'm feeling kind of, mm, 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 nothing's kind of going right. Mm, mm, mm. So a good thing to do is to look inside, just to stop and ask you, look inside your body. So there's your body. Now, most of us who've done, I know, mindfulness or yoga, you're used to kind of scanning your bodies. So there it is, there's the physical body. Now ask yourself, but what do I feel emotionally? What do I feel emotionally now if I pause and look inside? And it's a good question. It's not always obvious. Kind of look around and say, well, how do I know that? How do I know whatever it is that I feel? So doing it right now, Connor, as I talk to you, I go, I feel um, 
oh, I feel a funny mixture of anxious and happy. And I think the anxious is because I want to do my best for you and for the listeners and for me and for the powerhouse. So I'm a little bit anxious. Am I getting this right? And I'm, a, and I'm also a little bit happy and smiling because I'm enjoying the conversation. So I've got these two different emotions going on. And that also tells me right now, okay, I'm, I'm maybe not doing my best, but I'm heading that way. I'm trying to pay attention to where I really am. So I was bored actually when I was <laughs> in this conversation, but if I am bored, I'm gonna do the same process. I look inside and I go, well, what are the feelings inside? Because you feel from you and from the world. Your emotions are meaningful, never problems. Whatever, however pleasant that feeling is, it's not a problem, it's a message and it's empty. And if you can meet it, whatever it is, except the same time as witness it, it will transform. Your emotions, your feelings are part of you and part of understanding. And you let them evolve, you evolve yourself. When you give yourself, pay attention to yourself, when you give yourself, accept your feeling and let it open up. Another metaphor I say is unfold, not a sad feeling, a bad feeling, an awful Why? Why is it sad and bad? So I'm sad because I'm not happy, because I'm missing somebody. And you find that underneath the sadness or the depression or the badness, there is a positive wish. You want to be with people. You want to connect. So there's a great misunderstanding about emotions. People, there are bad ones and good ones. That's just not true. They're all part of our process. And when we accept them, open them up, they point us in the direction we need to go next. I think that's a great message to almost conclude on. Uh, the question that I like to ask towards the end of the conversation each time, Hugh, is what is next? Based on the quite varied career that you've had so far, and obviously this current situation is tricky for everybody, what would you like to achieve next going forward? Um, I'd like, actually, Connor, I'd like to have a lot more conversations like this. Um, I'd like people to become empowered. That's why we're doing the powerhouse to recognize that even though the world looks very tricky and there's a lot of conflict and a lot of oppression and a lot of fear a lot of people frightened lots of different things now um actually each individual has the possibility of being part of the solution and paying attention to their own immediate world and making that little bit of the world just a little bit better so connecting whether we're doing, whether it's like this, uh, through a Zoom call or with your neighbor or somebody you just in the street, a smile is always a little better than nothing at all. And, and move away from this top-down control by just sharing solutions and working towards simple solutions, not trying to fix the whole world, make things go a little bit better with friends and neighbors, to try and reach out to people we think we disagree with and, just tell them a story, share some ideas, not argue, don't try and convince people that you're right or they're wrong. Just uh, share a little bit of humility. So I think I would like to do a lot more teaching and training. Um, and uh, the, the essence of it is now 
Connor, that I can't sum it up in three bullet points. That's one of the delusions of academia that we can kind of somehow have a wonderful heading that sums everything up. It's not like that. Life is much, much richer. It has a, a, a depth of understanding. And so what I want to do is excessive field of way too much information and knowledge that we get through the internet all the time is say, that's enough. That's enough knowledge and information. What we need more of is understanding. Understand what you already know more deeply and you will become more flexible, more capable and happier. Excellent. Where can we might find out more about you and your work perhaps with the powerhouse online or on social media here? Um, the powerhouse is uh, the powerhouseclass.com and if you or if you go to the the powerhouse power all one word on facebook you'll get hold of us my own website is hughwillborn.com that's h u g h w i l l l b o u r n.com and it's all kind of connected up uh, you should be able to find all of those uh, we have um, in the next course is Negotiate to the Top, that starts on the 20th of September, but um, I'm very open to uh, conversations about how I can help if people have particular issues, they're more than welcome to get in touch. Um, uh, that's kind of it really. Excellent. Well Hugh, uh, firstly I've really enjoyed the conversation and I also have taken a lot from it, which I will hope to apply in the coming weeks in my own situation. Thank you very much for coming on today. It's hugely appreciated and all the very best in your future endeavors. Thank you very much, Connor. And thank, thank you for um, inviting me. It's been a pleasure.